Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, weirdos. It's Rachel. Just a heads up that the episode you're about to hear will sound a little different because it's the first half of our Halloween live show, which we held at Caveat in New York City on Halloween obviously. It was great. It was sold out as usual. So we will definitely be doing another live show event very soon, maybe even with space for more weirdos or in a place other than New York City. If you'd like us to come tour near you and you have ideas about where we should do it, please let us know. In fact, if you'd like to help make a live show outside of New York City happen sooner, you can do your part by filling out a user survey that we're going to be posting a link to in the show notes and at popsidecom slash weird. It'll just help us figure out where there's interest, more details about where our listenership is and what they might be excited about seeing us do. So yeah, please take that survey. It'll only take a few minutes. It'll really, really help us out. As for the live show, you may notice that we reference visual presentations. We do a lot of odd Photoshop mashups for the show. If you really wanted to see them, you should have come, but we will post some of them on popsi.com slash weird. You'll also hear reference to a drinking game because there was one. We'll post those rules on popsi.com slash weird as well, and you are welcome to play along as long as you are of legal age in the country you are currently in and you are not operating a moving vehicle. And of course, the sound quality will be a little different because we were in a live performance space caveat in New York City. Check it out. They're pretty great. Okay, that should be everything you need to know to enjoy part one of our super spooky live show. So let's get to it. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech articles every week. And while most of the stuff we come across ends up in our articles, some of the other weird facts we find just stay around the office. Mm. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, a podcast from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feldman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. And I'm Jess Bodie. Amazing. Thank you for joining me today, ladies. And thank you, everyone, at Caveat. Woo! So we are here for, I believe, our fourth live show, and it is a special extra spooky one for Halloween. 
for those of you who don't know, on The Weirdest Thing I Learned this week, we start by offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we came across in the course of reading, writing, reporting, putting together a PowerPoint, and doing a lot of Photoshop manipulations, and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Eleanor, why don't you start with your tease? Sure. I would like to talk about how Madame Tussauds wax figures began as a macabre royalist hobby. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Spooky. Yes. Topical and seasonally appropriate. Jess. Sure. I would like to talk about what 17th century witches and Harry Styles have in common. What don't they have in common? That's a great question, actually. I would like to talk about the ultimate goth girlfriend that most of you probably didn't know you already had. Wow. Rachel, you should spontaneously start. (laughs) Right? (laughs) um, Thank you, Eleanor. I know you're just so moved by my tease. So this is a story about Mary Shelley. Mm. I spent a lot of time putting that Hot Topic bag in Bauhaus poster. Um, So um, please appreciate it. I only do Photoshop for the sake of these live shows. So most people know Mary Shelley as the woman who wrote Frankenstein. I, for one, had some misconceptions about her. So I had learned in school that she wrote Frankenstein as like a horror story about technology because she didn't trust it. This is all a lie. And uh, I'm going to start with a note about the book's really fascinating origin story, which is how I got into looking into Mary Shelley. So um, the year was 1816, and Mary Godwin, which was her maiden name, 18, was on Lake Geneva with an intriguing cast of characters. There was her married lover, Percy Shelley, and their young son. And they were there, according to some sources, because Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, was trying to get back on the radar of their friend, Lord Byron, the father of her unborn child. And then also there was Byron's personal physician, John Polidori, who is not on this slide (laughs) because I didn't realize until after making it that he was both important and also super hot. So I am sorry to this man, John Polidori, (laughs) who is not on this slide. 1816 was known as the year without a summer. We've talked about this on the podcast a couple times before. So the eruption of Mount Tambaro in Indonesia spewed clouds of volcanic ash into the atmosphere. So it it made weather unusually cold and gloomy even thousands of miles away. And 1816, people thousands of miles away did not know why this was happening. So our young lovers were supposed to be like in a vacation, a summer vacation (laughs) spot and did not know why it was such a cold and gloomy July. This is like the equivalent of when you get on a cruise ship and it gets stuck in the middle of the ocean. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Everything goes wrong. And Lord Byron's there (laughs) eating only potatoes and vinegar, which we covered in an early episode. (laughs) And also it must have been very awkward because he was not into Claire Claremont who was pregnant with his unborn child. So like I think there was a lot going on at this lake house. So they coached by having a lot of like weird philosophical discussions, and then Byron was reading a lot of German horror at the time, and he decided that everybody should come up with a scary story. Polidori, who again, I'm sorry, beautiful man, just not on this slide. You can pretend that he's Cardi B. That's close. And so he wrote a short story that would actually help inspire Dracula decades later. But Mary, meanwhile, had been having dreams about mad scientists. And so she ran with that and basically invented science fiction as we know it. Record scratch. Yep, that's me. You're probably wondering how I got in this situation. 
Mary was not just any 18-year-old girl. And uh, it's not surprising that she found herself in a goth cabin on a lake in Switzerland. <laughs> Goals. Inventing science fiction as the Western canon knows it. So we're going to talk about what made her special. Okay. So this is a tombstone that will be important in a second. This tombstone is her mother <laughs> in more ways than one. Okay. So... So due to physician error and general uncleanliness, Mary's mother died just a few days or hours after her birth. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, who was a noted feminist and writer. And her father was a philosopher who basically mainstreamed anarchism by arguing that the government was a corrupting force but would be rendered increasingly unnecessary and powerless by the spread of knowledge. Hail, hail. Yeah, and he also <laughs> he looked forward to a day when intelligence would basically make illness and maybe even death obsolete. So, like, all of this makes sense. And Godwin said in a few of his writings that he, like, felt the spirits of the dead around him in a very, like, natural philosophy sense. And he said once, I would have the dead around my path and around my bed and not allow myself to hold a more frequent intercourse with the living than with the good departed. As a result, Mary spent a lot of time hanging out at the cemetery with her father with and her mother, <laughs> this tombstone. And she may have even lost her virginity there. More on that in a bit. According to some scholars, she studied her parents' writings like a scholarly detective seeking clues to the significance of some cryptic text. So basically, Mary's father remarried to a neighbor who she found stupid and insufferable. Um, <laughs> and she was essentially raised by books and this tombstone. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's reading all of these reviews of her mother's work, calling her a philosophical wanton, a monster, saying she wrote scriptures archly framed for propagating whores. So Mary Shelley was like, that's me. <laughs> um, and then she met Percy. Percy Shelley was 21 when they met. She was 16. He was married and had a child. But they took long romantic walks in the cemetery, which is not surprising Eleanor, I believe you wrote about this once, how... Uh, I did. Yeah. People love to hang out in cemeteries because where else were you going to go? There were no parks. That basically was a concept that had not been invented yeah. for Victorians. So, Set up um, your picnic on grave of choice. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I've seen the story about her losing her virginity on her mother's grave shared before, and I feel like sometimes the subtext is like, you mom I am a grown lady who's gonna have sex with this married man but in reality it was more like let's seance and chill in my happy place <laughs> and that was their love story they ended up going to France and traveling around with her stepsister Claire which many scholars said was mysterious but we now know is because Claire was probably also having sex with Percy which is not mysterious at all yeah, 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 yeah. And they only married in 1816 after Shelley's first wife committed suicide. Their family was extremely messed up. And for what it's worth, Claire Claremont's memoirs, which were only discovered by a researcher named Daisy Hay just a few years ago, she said that under the influence of the doctrine and belief of free love, she saw the two first poets of England, by which she met Percy and Lord Byron, become monsters. And this is what happens when poly people can't share Google calendars with each other is my takeaway. But yeah, so the family was pretty dysfunctional, and then Percy died in a boating accident in 1822, <laughs> which happens to be the same year that Mary finally released an edition of Frankenstein with her name on it. For the first few years, it was anonymous, and the introduction was written by Percy, so many people assumed it was his work. Boo. 
Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, he was useless. That's him burning. Um, <laughs> dump him. So he died in a boating accident and was burned on a beach because they like couldn't take his body home. I think they were in Italy at the time, and it was just like they couldn't drag him home with them. Um, so he was surrounded by like Lord Byron and all these other like literary soft boys, um, and. They brought home what they assumed was his heart. This is controversial. Some people say that maybe it really was his heart and it didn't burn because he had tuberculosis when he was younger and it could have calcified his heart to an extent that it wouldn't have burned. It's possible it was just a random lump of something. But what's important is that Mary Shelley thought it was the heart of her late husband and she kept it until she died. <laughs> also, one of his friends pictured here fought her for it, like, told her he deserved it more because his love for Percy was worth more than hers was. Whoa. Um, but she, she won that. I think he got the skull instead. So That's a plot line even the Kardashians haven't explored. <laughs> 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 and she actually, when she died, the heart was in her possessions and it was wrapped in like the last poem he ever wrote. Extremely goth Metal. Give love me a story. And this is not that, not that surprising considering that people in the same era did a lot of like remembering the dead in ways that are pretty shocking to us today. There were pictures taken of people after their death because most people couldn't afford to take photos while they were living. Like you never knew when it was a good time to take a photo until it was too late. And they were like, it's not too late though. Prop them up. <laughs> so many photos like this. There was memento mori jewelry. This is made out of hair. We've talked about that on the episode about selling human bone art. Yeah. This is much more ethical to buy than art made out of human bones, in my opinion, but, you know, to each their own. And um, this is made out of teeth. So I think it's milk teeth. So this isn't from a dead person. This I is like a, a, mother's, a mother's ring. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary Shelley. One could argue that she invented sci-fi, and I think she's not given enough credit for this. Now, that being said, there are examples of great science fiction like outside Western literature. Fifth century BC, the Indian Hindu epic poem, Ramayana, includes flying machines in space and underwater, definitely sci-fi. And then Aristophanes had air travel to other worlds. But there was kind of this long period where it was like, is it sci-fi, is it fantasy? And so there may have been stuff that was science fiction before Mary Shelley, but Frankenstein was definitely science fiction. And because of the way it's been adapted into movies, it's very often put in with horror. But in Frankenstein, the scientist is obsessed with alchemy and natural philosophy, but then rejects it because he hears about galvanization experiments, which were real at the time, and this is what inspired the book, that basically people were using electricity to like make dead muscles twitch. And Mary Shelley was like, what if you could do that with a whole body? And it wasn't about science being scary the way I personally was always taught in school. It was about how scientific endeavor taken away from like moral education and ethics could lead to disaster, which is what science fiction and speculative fiction is all about. And then I read this really, just to wrap up, to give us some parting thoughts on Mary Shelley, I read this really interesting feminist paper from the 1970s by this researcher, Gilbert, who pointed out that the monster is a cobbled together creature without true parentage, is a second class soulless citizen that doesn't fit in, and that Mary was pregnant, confined, or nursing from the time she went off with Percy when she was 16 until the time she wrote Frankenstein. The first three of her children died before or sooner after birth, and her mother had died in childbirth. So it was a horror story about creation and about birth. It wasn't a story about the horrors of science. And I think that's really amazing. And hail, hail. Hail, hail. Yeah. That's it. 
next, I don't know who could possibly be next. Can you yeah. say we're going to take a break? Oh, you're right. We are going to take a <laughs> quick break. And there's going to be some music. Hey guys, this is Jess. And before we get back to the show, I just wanted to share a new podcast with you from This Old House. Yeah, if you're a PBS fan like me, I think you'll really like it. So it's called Clear Story and it sheds light on the surprising stories behind our homes. Host Kevin O'Connor digs into the systems, structures, and materials in our homes from unexpected angles. Like, why is the window the ultimate machine? And what can Las Vegas teach us about lowering our water bills? And a topic near and dear to my heart, how did the Great Chicago Fire change the way we frame houses today? There's also plenty of just practical stuff like how do you build the perfect roof? You'll hear all of this from the This Old House experts as well as industry leaders, historians, and builders. You can find Clear Story and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And you can learn more at thisoldhouse.com slash clearstory. And now we're back. That was <laughs> incredible. Okay, it's me. So, as I said earlier, I would really like to talk about Madame Tussauds, who I recently learned was a real person, not just a brand. Unlike me. Yes. So this is her. Her name was Anna Maria Groschultz. She went by Marie. And she was born in France in 1760, but her father died before she was born, and so her mom was raising her on her own, and they kind of go back and forth, they're traveling around, and then her mom gets a job as a housekeeper for a doctor named Philippe Curtius. And this is where Marie's story really begins. So Curtius, you know, he's like a town physician, so whatever that entailed, like leeches, I don't know. But he had a side hustle in wax modeling, as we all do. And he started a wax portraiture firm in Paris, and he quickly got, like, really famous. People really wanted him to, like, make these sort of three-dimensional portraits of famous people, the Kardashians of their era. And so he took a cast of King Louis XV's mistress, Madame du Barry, and it was just, like, this big deal that he would make these sort of commemorative pieces. And so he decided to teach Marie, who called him uncle, what he knew of the craft. And she actually really became like very, very good at it and very fast. So in 1777, when she's only 17 years old, she makes her first wax cast of the writer Voltaire, who ended up dying the following year. She was like called in because he was sick and they were like, we love him so much. Please make a copy of his face while he breathes <laughs> out of straws. So I know, I know you're not feeling well. Yeah, just <laughs> can I these up your face? Exactly, that was her process. And so then from there, she went on to make casts of like the French politician Jean-Jacques Robespierre. She also did one of Benjamin Franklin, founding father and friend of the show. <laughs> um, we are always deeply respectful of founding fathers. We would never speak ill on all of the terrible things they did. Um, and so, in her memoirs, which are very detailed and on Google Books, highly recommend perusing. She says that she was she got really close with the royal family, and like as historians note, there is no like real evidence of this, but she says it was true, so we'll go with it, because she was apparently teaching votive design to the sister of King Louis XVI, or as I like to call him, Marie Antoinette's husband. <laughs> and she spent a lot of time at the courts, like, you know, in Versailles, hanging out, making art, seemed to have a lot of fun, ate a lot of cake, and you know where I'm going with this, the French Revolution happens. 
So you probably heard of it, but in the spring of 1789, things change for Dear Marie and for the entire nation of France because they're tearing things down, they're starting over, like the Anshan regime is over, it's canceled. And in July, dear Uncle Curtius, he makes wax figures of the heads of Jacques Necker and the Duc d'Orleans to parade around. And this is days before the storming of Bastille. And so it's a very charged time. And it kind of makes them look like royalist sympathizers, which is like not a popular way to be at this time. And so Curtius, Marie, and a bunch of other people who are accused of similar crimes, including Napoleon Bonaparte's wife, Josephine, are all rounded up and they're taken to jail, presumably by everyone's favorite revolutionary, Marius himself. This is where I like to believe that Les Miserables and Madame Tussaud intersect. We have no evidence. <laughs> um, and so they're thrown in jail, and apparently Marie's head, they went so far as to like shave her head down to prepare her for her own beheading. So it was, things were getting serious. Traumatic. Yeah. Definitely. She was uh, she was having a hard time there. She was staring down the guillotine, but she was spared under like weird circumstances where it seems like dear uncle Curtius had kind of like business connections who got him out. So like a little bit of intrigue there. But anyway, she gets out and she's like looking around and she's like, damn, there is an incredible market opportunity for my skills because everyone's heads are rolling and I know how to make copies of heads. <laughs> so... That's Supply right. Demand, baby. She, this is her impression of Marie Antoinette shortly after our Converse wearing queen was beheaded. <laughs> oh my God. And this was just one of the masks that she made at this time in this very charged moment. She also did Marie's husband, Louis XVI, and the political theorist Marat, who was like assassinated in his bathtub. She took his death mask as well. And so she became very well known for this and obviously like in a very weird and peculiar way has like you know preserved an important part of history like we have to give credit where credit is due but at the time that this political upheaval is unfolding Curtius went and died on her which I think is very rude it must have been a very traumatic time big time yeah like so anyway that happens but the cool thing is is that he leaves his entire collection of heads to Marie cute yeah which is so sweet I love that for her yeah Absolutely. So that's 1794. Marie Antoinette, for reference, dies in 1793. And then for some reason, this is like I find weird. After like living a very long life as a spooky single lady, she marries a civil engineer named Francois Tussaud in 1795. Ah. Yeah. And we don't like know much about him. And frankly, we do not need to. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> seriously, the li- this man did little else than give her two kids and her flashy last name. So thank you for that and nothing else, Francois Tussaud. <laughs> they didn't seem very happy. They started living apart very quickly. And it's only now that like her story starts to converge with the Madame Tussauds we all know. So in 1805, Tussaud took her son Joseph and also all of the wax heads that she'd inherited or made. And I just like, they, they go to England. And I just like to imagine them <laughs> on a boat and little Joseph, he's like six or something, and he's in steerage, and he's just surrounded by all these heads his mom <laughs> carries around with her all the time. And they're on their way to the British Isles. And so because of the Napoleonic War, they were just going to be there for a while and like tour with their heads. And because of the war, 
they can't go back. They're like trapped in the British Isles. And so Marie decides that she might as well make the most of it. And they spend the next 30 years touring with these heads. And at some point, her other kid who had been left behind in France, like comes over after things have died down. And he actually like takes up the business, which was run by the family until the 1960s. Really? Yeah. Wild. So they're touring around with all these heads. And it's only in 1835, when she's 75 years old, that Marie opens up her first permanent exhibition, which is what you can now see today at the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in London. Make this house of horrors a home. Yes, exactly. I'm sure that's on a cross stitch somewhere. Um, And so now, obviously, her empire is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. She's a super big deal. And what's kind of interesting is that, like, obviously we have so many new technologies, and you can do, like, 3D printing and blah, blah, blah. But, like, there's still, like, wax figures are still very much, like, intensive, handmade sort of processes. And, like, the sort of basic components of what she did are really similar. So today, people are alive, usually, when Madame Tussauds does this. And they have consented to their image being used. So they take more than 200 measurements of a celebrity's body. And then they make sort of, like, a hard model and then create a cast around that and then fill that with the wax. And then they just, like, pop the body out, and then, like, assemble all the various parts. Apparently, your head has to be, wait for it, detached from your body so that they can put it on at the very end and move it and change it as needed. But, yeah, they add custom eyes with, like, the colors not only of your, like, irises, but also of your whites of your eyes. They have different gradations, and they'll match them to you. And then they do this thing, too, I saw on the Internet, where they, like, will take little strips of fabric and, like, paint them on like they're the red, like, parts of your eyes. So they just, like... Like the veins? Mm-hmm. Like, they make the veins out of this, like, really thin material and then, Dude. like, paint it on these eyeballs. Anyway. And then they obviously consult with, like, the makeup and wardrobe people and the celebrities team about the look of the statue. But I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to let you hear from our special guest the best and most intense part of the process. Next thing that happens is the eyes and teeth are fitted, and then it's off for hair insertion. You know these guys insert all the hairs one by one into the wax heads? Wow, now that's patience. This is the least charismatic Beyonce has ever sounded. Yes. So for those of you who didn't put it together, this is a video that Beyonce made when she still spoke in public. Um... (laughs) About how her Madame Tussauds wax figure was assembled. Oh my God, I love that. What year was this? This is... Uh, it's like early 2000s, Yeah, right? this is from her Crazy in Love video, like, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 So, sorry, we have an audience answer. 2003 feels really right. Yeah, it does. <laughs> that belt? Yeah. So, you know, that was my story. We went from beheadings to Beyonce. Thank you. Wonderful. And uh, we're going to take a really quick break, and then Jess is going to be in with her fact. And we're back. We're back. Thank y'all so much, Jess. Yeah. Okay, so where it all began. (laughs) So... A few months ago, I came across a fact that I knew was just, like, the fact for this live show. And so I called Dibs, like, in po- the podcast yeah, studio you were and like, publicly. Ex- pardon me. Here's record. Rachel. I'm so glad that I did. Because it just sent me down the best rabbit hole. So, the witch's tea. 
What is it? The witch's teat is a thing that people just talked about a lot in the 17th century during the Salem witch trials and just like, you know, this was the peak of witch culture in general. You know, it was not a great time for people. So during this time, people were terrified of witches in their midst and of people, mostly women, doing the devil's work. And like a lot of people genuinely were really scared, like just because of the way things were back then. But a lot of other people used the hysteria and the paranoia of witch season to get rid of people that they didn't like or maybe like attain some power or make a lot of money. And those people called themselves witch finders, not witch hunters, which sounds way better. Sounds like a bad dating app. Yes, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. And these witch finders like really sucked a lot. One witch finder was this guy named Matthew Hopkins, and he lived in England until the mid 1650s. This is him. Sassy. So he was a lawyer, actually, first. He was a really, really bad lawyer. He really <laughs> he didn't make any money. He was an impoverished lawyer. So instead, he turned to witch finding to make some cash. So towns basically would like pay him to come and eradicate their witch problem, which basically is just like, oh, we don't like this person. Can you come and like tell people they're a witch so they're out? So he made a ton of money. He became so powerful and rich that he named himself the witch finder general. <laughs> And his claim to fame was this thing you may have heard of called the float test. Ah, people know. So basically, if you think someone's a witch, you tie them up with rope and then you lower them into a pond. And if they sink and drown, then they were innocent and they were saved by Jesus and God. And if they float and survive, then, oh my God, they're a witch. In which case you hang them or burn them at the stake. So they have to die either way. Totally. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's convenient if you're trying to like get rid of someone. Yeah. But yes, not a super nice guy. But another one of his favorite things was looking for witch's marks. One such thing is a witch's teat. So back to the witch's teat, yes. So if it was thought that if you were a witch, that you would have met with the devil and he would have put his mark on you. And that was like a permanent mark. Can confirm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that was like a permanent thing to like seal your obedience and service to him. And I found some historical texts talking about this published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. And as one educated Scotsman of the period named Reverend John Bell put it, quote, the witch mark is sometimes like a blue spot or a little teat or little red spots like a flea bite. I myself have seen it in the body of a confessing witch. Others described these marks as like raised bumps or moles or warts. And so they could skin. Appear- yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they could appear basically anywhere, many times on like the ribs or sides of the body. And so what Hopkins would do is if he thought someone was a witch, he would just like strip search them and he would like look for these quirks. And really what the text described like as these like little marks could fall under a lot of different like dermatological quirks. And then I found this. This paper says that extra nipples were often seen as witches' marks, a.k.a. witches' teats, where witches' imps or familiars would come to suckle and gain power. Supernumerary nipples. Super nu- yeah, that's the official term. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's cute. And honestly, like, this is kind of chill. Like, I wouldn't mind having an extra nipple if it meant that I got, like, a demon familiar. I am down with that. Like, check this out. 
this is a drawing that Matthew Hopkins created and he put it in a pamphlet to advertise his witch hunting. And we see like the two witches and like a bunch of familiars. Tag yourself, I think I'm Vinegar Tom. <laughs> yeah, you are? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, this is basically just like a classic case of blowing things out of proportion in a time of mass hysteria and paranoia. Peck in the crown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, lot of, lot of, a lot of layers I definitely here. saw that, la- I don't, I guess it says Holt. Yeah. But I definitely read it as hot in like a Paris Hilton <laughs> voice, hot. Yeah. This is how I feel about my witches familiars, so. Big time. So yeah, essentially, witches teat, not really a devil's mark, probably just an extra nipple. And they aren't even that uncommon. I'm like, yeah, they're technically classified as a rare disease, but some estimates say that 200,000 people a year in the U.S. are born with an extra nipple. And there isn't like a super well-agreed-upon figure for this, but I found another estimate that said as many as 1 in 18 men and 1 in 50 women have an extra nipple. Hmm. Common. Yeah. And so how do you know if you have one? Because <laughs> everyone's now like... There are six categories, six kinds of extra nipples. They're all basically combinations of having like an extra nipple, extra areola, and then like extra breast tissue. Like, for example... There was one woman who grew a whole extra boob on her thigh, and it lactated. And a lot of people don't know they have an extra nipple until they have a baby, and they start, like, lactating from their big toe or something. Just. Well, because before that, it just looks like a mole or something, right? Yeah, it could just look like a mole. Like, what isn't an extra nipple? So, and you know, the bottom of the foot... one way to find out. Lactation is another true story. And I actually have a photo. So close your eyes if you don't want to see a nipple on the bottom of a foot right now. Okay, close them. Okay, I'm changing it. There it is. It's only freaky because I know it's an extra nipple on the bottom of a foot. Yeah, totally. It just looks like it could be a birthmark if you saw it from far away. It has dimensions. (laughs) Yeah, the thing that gets me is, like, the skin around the areola that's, like, puckering. Um, Okay, I'll... Okay, I I changed it. Okay, it's it's safe now. You can open your eyes. So, yeah, if you really want to know if your weird mole is an extra nipple, I mean, if it doesn't look like that, (laughs) like, just see your dermatologist and they can tell you. And basically, these things happen, like, when we're embryos. So there's a part of development where, like, these two strips of skin thicken and become like what's known as milk lines or mammary ridges and basically that, that's just like skin that has the power to grow a nipple and during when you development, put it that way <laughs> during development that like those strips kind of like regress and you end up with the two regular ones but sometimes they don't regress all the way and so you just like get an extra nipple a triple nipple even <laughs> and like when you're an adult or when you like are born those like ridges run from like your armpits to your hips and that's why a lot of extra nipples end up there But sometimes they can just spontaneously develop anywhere, which means, just like Tony from Portlandia, Matthew Hopkins could be like, I feel a teat here, I feel a teat here, I feel a teat here. So he could use that to prove, like, basically you're a witch no matter what. So basically in Hopkins' mind today, many of us would be witches, including Chandler Bing. Three nipples, three nipples. Mark Wahlberg, that's a third nipple. 
Has he spoken on his third nipple, or did he you analyze photos? Okay. Oh, yeah, that was not my arrow, but yeah, thank you for, I, you know. I believe in your investigative abilities. Thank you. Um, yeah, he said people like usually photoshopped it out, actually. Wow, rude. I know. Free the nipple. Free the nipple. <laughs> Tilda Swinton, three nipples. An actual witch, though, clearly. So. Timothy Chalamet. Uh, no. No, I'm just kidding. He has two nipples. <laughs> But if you told me, I would believe any number of nipples you told me, Timothy. <laughs> me too. I was really hopeful. I really Googled it, but no, no avail. Uh, but Harry Styles has four nipples. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, this is true. So, yeah, your favorite celebrity is probably a witch. And I wonder, I was thinking, like, what kind of familiar, like, what kind of demon familiar would Harry have? And also, would he get two, like, one for each teat? <laughs> that seems only fair. I yeah. agree. You so, did. yeah, we may never know. That's all I have. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week was, and the, uh, the audience will, will make the call. So please cheer uh, for your vote and um, cheer loud because if we have a tie, I have no recourse. So <laughs> was the weirdest thing we learned this week that Mary Shelley is my goth girlfriend? No, I know. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You know, she's underappreciated. Whatever. I'm just doing the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> was it that Madame Tussauds' son sailed across the ocean in a room full of heads. <laughs> uh, or was it the number of nipples that uh, Timothy Chalamet and everyone else has? Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, Jess, you get this vintage... Congratulations. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.